Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to the World Affairs Podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Jeffrey Gordon, and today I'm talking to George Lawson. He's a professor at the London School of Economics and the author of Anatomies of Revolution from Cambridge University Press. Um, Professor Lawson, let's just dive right in. Um, As you note in the introduction, defining revolution creates a number of difficulties, particularly in a work with such a broad historical canvas. Uh, How do you define revolutions? Well, in part, I define them by what they're not, in that the first thing we have to think about is how revolutions sit within a wider corpus of forms of social change. So I wouldn't want to separate out revolutions completely from those other forms of social change, but nor would I want to collapse them into them. So the question is, to what extent we can differentiate revolutions from democratic transitions radical coups, uh, riots, rebellions of various kinds. And I think we can do so by thinking about how they attempt to simultaneously and forcefully transform not just one sphere of social life, as in a regime or a form of governance, but also how we manage our economic interrelations with each other and also an often uh, underrepresented but crucial symbolic forms of representation, whether that's Uh, a particular uh, form of religion or a particular appropriation of rights or how we might uh, relate to each other in a very basic day-to-day level. So it's the simultaneous attempt to forcefully, with significant help from movements from below, transform these three spheres of social life more or less simultaneously. Right. And so um, you're excluding from this definition things like so-called transitions from above or uh, what the political scientist Lucan Way calls um, pluralism by default, where you have a democratic transition, but it's not really driven from pressure from below. And the political actors are um, different elite groupings who aren't interested in a fundamental transformation of society. They're simply interested in um, instituting a new way to choose leaders, more or less, Um, or you're not including military coups uh, in a lot of cases, right? Yeah, I mean, the problem you've got, right, is that one shorthand for revolutions is just big change. And big change can actually happen lots of different ways. If you think about the last 30 or 40 years, I challenge you to think of a more radical transformation that's what's taken place in China. That's largely taken, been taken by decisions made by an elite within a particular constitutional order. So I think that's extremely radical, but I would say that was a case of autocratic modernization rather than revolutionary change. And you might think the same about various Gulf monarchies. I mean, if you can think of a more radical transformation now going back 50, 60, 70 years than what's taken place in somewhere like Dubai, then I'd be pretty surprised. But again, that hasn't got that dimension of forceful, popular contestation, extra constitutional, transgressive people putting themselves and their families on the line 
um, and risking everything uh, sometimes for what feel like hopeless causes. So I think the big change issue isn't enough because you can have radical coups, you can have radical programs of autocratic modernization. And then you're exactly right. The other version of where I think confusion arises is that we see forms of intra-elite contestation, just the removal of one elite and the introduction of another, as often synonymous with revolution. And I can see why, because there's a lot of examples of that in the contemporary world, whether we think about uh, events in Ukraine over the last 10 or 20 years or various other places, you can see that type of change and sometimes accompanied by forms of popular mobilization, the occupation of squares and and, and so on. But again, because it's limited almost entirely to one sphere of social and political life, who's who's, uh, in the seat of power and leaves largely intact those everyday forms of interaction plus uh, how we relate to each other in terms of form of exchange and production and all the rest of it, then I think we have to see those as more limited than how we might at least ideal typically begin by thinking about how revolutionary change uh, both rubs up alongside, but also is differentiated from these other forms of social change. So we've got two tasks here, and it isn't easy. The one is to say that revolutions relate to and are not completely distinct from these other social forms of social change, but on the other hand, to realise that they have a relative autonomy from them. And I think it's that combination of popular mobilisation from below, forceful, extra-constitutional, transgressive, action and contestation, plus this attempt to reconfigure not just one part of how a society is organized, but all of it, again, more or less at the same time. Right. Um, And uh, as you point out in the book, um, uh, the events that produce a particular revolution are not replicable because contexts are never completely alike. Mm. Yet, as a social scientist, you are interested in generating theoretical propositions that can inform us about the causes and consequences of revolutions across space and time. You want some kind of propositions that can travel, right? Um, So how do you approach trying to explain revolutions when, as you put it, revolutions are not a single thing? With great care and trepidation. Um, I mean, here, I mean, the book in many ways is a classic case of trying to do it all. And trying to say, look, we have to understand, as you just said, that all revolutions, as they occur in a particular time and place, are singular. They are unrepeatable. That doesn't mean, however, that you can't abstract certain logics and certain insights from those cases to others. And that's why in the book, I try and take such a wide range of cases and and hopefully cases that people find unlike or counterintuitive and say, well, if we can find some comparable insights from these unlike cases, then hopefully we've got something that we can use to broaden our our horizons and try and balance this this theory history loop in productive ways. But I do understand that it's attention, um, that you can never do uh, justice to a particular case and nor can you uh, uh, theorize from on high in a way that lets that granular detail um, uh, swim away from you. So it's it's an attempt to try and do both and occupy this in-between space, being slightly concerned, as I must say, the old adage goes that in occupying this in-between space, you get knocked down by traffic in both directions. 
Right. And so uh, your solution uh, to this approach is to look at causal configurations. Can you describe a little bit of your your method of, of looking at causal configurations in different revolutionary episodes? Um, hold on one second, Jeff. Yeah. Sorry about that. We just got a child interrupted for a sec. <laughs> no problem. Um. Yeah, so what I do is I uh, try and uh, take a pretty considered uh, view of what we know about um, the study of revolutions and related processes, democratization, forms of transition, other forms of social change, because there's been, as you know, a lot of work on this subject over the past century or two, and try and say, okay, is there some set of synthetic insights that we can try and pull from these uh, uh, previous works and generate some kind of, of rational order from them. At the same time, I try and take as many cases as I can, uh, as unlike as I can, and try and think and go and try and tack between these two registers, you know, what we think we know abstractly, theoretically, conceptually, analytically, and what uh, are wider universe of cases than we might often allow because we're opening up the study of revolutions to a bunch of processes that uh, sometimes have been excluded from them and tack between the two. So the idea is do justice to the singular cases, but try and generate portable insights from them as they're put into active conversation with various theoretical, conceptual, analytical works over the past couple of centuries. And if we keep tacking between the two, then we're allowing that tension, that in-between space, that connection between theory and history to be a bit more disrupted than it otherwise is. Because the standard approach uh, is if you're a historian, you take the particular cases and you might look comparatively at them and try and generate some insights from there, but there'll still be a bounded uh, universe there temporally, spatially, at least almost always. And if you have the opposite approach, whether it's uh, a particular social structural approach like someone like Theda Scotchpole or Jack Goldstone or John Foran in the study of revolutions, you're effectively trying to apply your theoretical insights to a particular universe of cases. And it would be the same thing if you're trying to generate a particular type of quantitative social science, a particular a data set of revolutions like someone like Erica Chenoweth does. Once you've coded, the case is already done. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't uh, do some historical work and do some case study work and and provide some sort of um, sort of exotic plumage around the edges of your analysis. But really, the data set has done the work in the same way that theoretical accounts in Theda Scotchpole and Jack Goldstone and John Foran and others have already done the work. And I'm just trying to have a more open conversation between these two registers and allow them both to move as we go. And that really comes from that sensibility of thinking about revolutions as processes that change uh, in form, in intensity and character over time and place. Right. Um, and I think that one of the challenges with studying revolutions is that uh, actors know the history too, and they try to adjust their strategies based on their readings of previous revolutionary histories. And so that can change um, this kind of strategic behavior can change the the sequences and, and causal factors that are working in any given revolutionary episode. Um, 
So one of the major contributions of this book is its deep theorization of what you call intersocial causes and consequences of revolutions. Uh, what do you mean when you say that revolutions are intersocial all the way down? And how does your conception of the intersocial differ from other scholars who have argued that international relations are important for understanding revolutions uh, such as Theta Scotch Bowl? Well, intersocial is a terrible term. And if you or someone else <laughs> can think of another one, I'd be very grateful. I mean, what I really mean are transboundary relations forms of interrelationship that cross particular boundaries. There might be a political unit, it might be another form of institutional connection, it might be an overlap of networks of various kinds. So it can be uh, a slogan that's picked up by one group and carried elsewhere. It could be a form of media, it could be an interpersonal tie. It might be a form of governance that's mimicked uh, or applied to a, another location. Uh, it could be a various strategy that's moved from one location to another, or sometimes it might literally be the geopolitical relations between uh, one stronger state and uh, of, uh, of one or more client states. So I just couldn't think of a way of trying to capture all of these different forms of transboundary relation. Uh, and the other terms available to me didn't really seem to do the job. So Fida Scotchpole's term is intersocietal, and she's concentrating on relations between societies. The problem there is you have to assume that the boundary you're looking at is a society. And it struck me that sometimes it's not. Uh, in her case, she's often looking at inter-imperial relations. Often she's looking at relationships that are more fluid than those simply between societies. So uh, I struggle to find something that did uh, the job for me. Sometimes I'm interested in interstate. Sometimes I'm interested in societal. Sometimes I'm interested in international. But I didn't want to make an assumption about what these boundaries are. So I, I stuck to this ugly term that has one benefit, as far as I'm concerned, and one benefit only, uh, which is that this is actually what I mean. So I'm not uh, sacrificing there. Um, the analytics. I'm, I'm simply saying, look, I'm interested in this huge variety of forms of interaction that are neither internally bounded, they do not just come from below and then we compare different nation states, as is the, the common pattern in comparative politics, nor am I interested in, in limiting the international to interstate um, and intersocietal, which I think in the end is what Scotch Bull does. I think what intersocietal means for her is actually interstate. You know, she's, the, the real value of that book for an IR audience, and to some extent for a revolutionary audience more generally, was how she related geopolitics and to some extent geoeconomics to state weakness. If you were this state on the semi-periphery of either the geopolitical international system or the geoeconomic uh, system, then you were vulnerable to particular forms of crisis and a shift in those relations. And that allied to a movement below could open up the state and allow a revolutionary movement a chance of success. And I thought that was great, but I didn't think that was the whole sum of how uh, international stuff, the transboundary relations impact on how revolutions emerge, what happens during them and what happens after them. Right. Uh um, a real danger of literature that tries to 
across these boundaries between domestic and international is that you end up reifying and naturalizing that very boundary and reproducing this binary in your own analysis um, by assuming that the the nation state is um, the uh, natural unit of analysis of of politics and uh, thereby ignoring important uh, political and economic and, and social power networks that transverse borders have always transverse borders in many cases uh, predate the existence of any kind of, of, of formal geopolitical boundaries between countries. And so I think that what you're trying to get at with your inner social causes is this, these deeper levels of, of interaction um, between societies and trying to avoid reifying the notion of a national society, which um, to the extent that national societies exist, as Michael Mann tells us, they're the consequence of a historical process of caging economies and political activity within formal geopolitical boundaries. Yeah, I mean, that's the reification is one issue. The bifurcation, which you mentioned, is another. And the third thing I think it does is I think often this analysis ends up with the international as a pretty residual character. Um, so if you take the work of someone like John Foran, whose work on third world revolutions I admire and build a lot from, he's got five uh, causes of how revolutions in the third world tend to take place and you start with what he calls dependent development you then run through a bunch of things which he considers to be effectively internal to a particular country whether it's the type of regime or the particular uh, culture of protest and then an economic downturn and he ends the sequential analysis with what he calls world systemic opening which might be some kind of shift in in a geopolitical order the really obvious example though it's not from the third world from the global south is Mikhail Gorbachev's reconfiguration of sovereignty um, amongst satellite states of Eastern Central Europe from the mid to late 1980s and, and what opening that provided for movements from below to succeed and what it did to ideas of legitimacy and sovereignty from above. But I've got two problems with Ferenc's analysis beyond the reification point you mentioned, which is one is he effectively splits the international from the domestic. So in that analysis, number one, dependent development, and number five, world systemic opening are international. And the three in the middle uh, are all he considers to be uh, domestic. As I said, it's a particular type of exclusionary regime, these personalistic regimes running from the Shah in Iran to Somoza in Nicaragua to Batista in Cuba and so on, which are often vulnerable to revolutionary movements from below. Economic downturns he considers to be primarily domestic and cultures of opposition he considers to be domestic. And it strikes me that that isn't right, that all three of those apparently domestic factors are themselves intersocial. Exclusionary regimes have friends and allies. Just think about the Gulf monarchies and how important those relationships were to how the Arab uprisings in 2011 played out. Economic downturns may affect one state more than another, but they sure aren't uh, domestically caused, uh, certainly not in an interdependent global economy like we have today. And cultures of opposition, I think, are these translocal blends. I mean, you think about the figure of Che Guevara, this Argentinian with Irish background, going back on his dad's side, fighting in Cuba, spreading revolution around the world, whose image is relatable to by a bunch of people around the world. I think of the contemporary appropriation of 
of Guy Fawkes via a uh, a 1980s uh, anarchist uh, graphic novel into the, the the main signifier of of movements like Occupy Wall Street in the contemporary world. These are movements across time and place that resonate in particular local conditions, but aren't themselves reducible to local conditions. So that's what I mean by intersocial all the way down. The closer you look for these apparently internal, domestic, caged uh, factors, the more you see that they're actually far more fluid uh, and promiscuous blends of translocal, of transboundary, of intersocial relations than we might think. So rarefication is one issue, bifurcation is another. The third one is this issue of, of the international being residual. So you take again four ends analysis. You know, those those two international factors of dependent development and world systemic opening don't really do anything in his analysis. More or less every state he looks at, which is not that surprising if you think about his interest in in the global south and third world states, are in a condition of dependent development on others, of course. And I would argue that in the contemporary world, that's the condition of more or less every state in the world that's effectively interdependent uh, on others. And that category that he closes with of world systemic opening is really, you know, the taking the lid off a pressure cooker. The actions really happened elsewhere. You just take the lid off and uh, the explosion happens, the revolution happens. So the real action takes place in those three categories he thinks about as primarily or solely domestic. And not only do I think uh, that the international uh, uh, impedes on and it's mixed up and enmeshed with those three apparently domestic factors. But I also think the international is much more important than that. And I would say the same thing about someone like Scotchball. When it comes down to it, what she's really interested in is geopolitical competition and war and how particularly defeat and war delegitimizes a particular power. And we can see when we study a very wide universe of cases over the past, say, two, three hundred years, that sometimes that's the case and sometimes not. But international factors are far more important in how revolutions come about, how they endure, and then how uh, uh, what happens after them than a simple reduction to, to uh, war and defeat in war. So it's those three factors, I think, together, reification, bifurcation, and then the residual way that the international has been treated in much revolutionary scholarship that the book is really primarily going after. Right. Um, and so now transitioning to the empirical and, and theoretical meat of the book, uh, your anatomies uh, as, uh, that the book is named for, you divide revolutions into three phases uh, in which uh, distinct causal configurations are driving the action. Um, the first of which is the revolutionary situation in which a regime and opposition come to advance competing but exclusive claims to the same polity. Uh, what are the factors that are most likely to give rise to revolutionary situations? Um, well, the first thing to say is that, I mean, there's nothing particularly novel about thinking uh, about revolutions in this way, and that it's largely taken from uh, uh, people like Charles Tilley. However, I can't think of an area of the social sciences that has been so dominated by structural thinking. And what that's meant is that people tend to relate very clearly outcomes with particular causes, and they miss a lot of the stuff that happens in the middle. So something you said in passing before then gets written out of the account, which is what about all of these characters we associate with revolutions? You know, what about the Lenin and the Robespierre and the Toussaint Louverture and 
the Castro and the Che and, uh, and the Khomeini and everybody else. Uh, effectively, by thinking about revolutions as this shorthand for big change that endures, we meant that we study just a handful of cases. We had an inbuilt selection bias towards a bunch of cases we considered to be successful because they'd had a big enough transformation. And then we went back from those cases of big transformation to try and find big causes. So one thing I'm trying to do here is to actually pass out these various elements and say, look, first of all, the cases that we build the social science of revolutions from are often not what you think they are. I've always thought it was pretty odd that we construct this entire edifice from the study of France, or at least that's most people's ground zero, sorry for North American listeners, but that tends to be the way that they're studied uh, in much of the world. And yet this is a revolution that's hijacked or usurped by Napoleon and partially overturned in the Bourbon Restoration 20 years down the line, having had this period of enormous conflict and contestation uh, for much of that period. So in what sense is that necessarily our archetypal case of successful revolution? We could run through a bunch of cases that are considered to be equally or nearly as important, and we'd find similar historical wrinkles at the very least. So one thing I'm trying to do is widen out the universe of cases. And it starts from that very basic idea that, look, there are lots more revolutionary movements than successful revolutionary outcomes. There are lots more revolutionary situations, that condition of dual or multiple sovereignty that you mentioned, which Tilly draws from Leon Trotsky, than successful revolution. So let's not let's not miss this stuff in the middle. And let's not necessarily think that the causes of or the outcomes of a revolution can be hardwired axiomatically back into their causes. There's a lot of action that we're missing this way. So it's not novel, but it's trying to take on that insight and do some justice to it because the study of revolutions tends to go from outcomes back to causes and then miss a lot of the action in between. So I think one thing that happens uh, when you look more closely at revolutionary situations is this issue of thinking about uh, the international or the transboundary or the intersocial in uh, a more profound, pronounced, deeper way uh, than we c- we have done previously, which is not to say that Scotch Paul's ideas about the semi-periphery or the delegitimation of defeat and war or Foran's idea of uh, dependent development or work by Jack Goldstone on how demographic change over a particular region will impact uh, unevenly and produce fiscal pressure, which might itself erode the legitimacy of a state or, or mean that it's forced into opening up to alternative elites, which may then mobilize popular resistance for their own end. So all of those insights I'm trying to build from, it's not a book that tries to junk the study of revolutions, it's actually trying to do justice to where we are to accumulate where we've got to and synthetically, then hopefully with with some bits and bobs of originality, move things forward. So one example when it comes to revolutionary situations is the example I gave you about Gorbachev, that you have this repositioning of client-patron relations, which provides some kind of space for movements from below to emerge. Um, So I actually go back uh, to 17th century England to have a look at how that took place, and also how England was caught effectively between two more powerful neighbours, both of which offered it a model 
of the future, but of a quite different kind. On the one hand, you had Catholic absolutist France, which was effectively the way uh, that the English monarchy decided that it wanted to go. And then you had the Dutch Protestant constitutional version, which in the end uh, is partly responsible for the civil war and much more responsible for the Glorious Revolution in 1688. So it's trying to show that it's not just the particular insights we've uh, we've used in the past, but it can sometimes be something like a model to be admired and emulated. It can be a fairly indirect set of international ties when you're looking over at more powerful neighbours, you're partly in a position of asymmetrical relationship with them. So part of this is coercion, part of this is an example to be emulated. And this sense of your own backwardness, in scare quotes, can sometimes lead uh, an elite or a group of elites to find a way to harness forms of popular mobilization for their own ends. And that in and of itself can often lead to a revolutionary contestation. So it's an illustration of how the international can be much more than what we've already seen. And actually, we can go back to one of the earliest cases in modern world history of revolution and find uh, those particular insights and those particular pressures. Right. And um, uh, your example, your discussion of these uh, competing models is something that I come across a lot in studying countries uh, where uh, that have had so-called revolutions from above or, um, you know, elite led authoritarian modernization drives where um, everyone tries to emulate uh, first Japan and then um, uh, Turkey. Uh, they actors in all parts of Asia and even in places like Ethiopia try to learn about these uh, uh, models from abroad and try to replicate some of their institutions. But because of their domestic contextual factors, these institutions wind up having um, different consequences. And we see the same thing in 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 studies of revolutions uh, that have um, uh, a more of a from below aspect as well. Um, uh, you discuss your your case of uh, the Glorious Revolution uh, as being a successful uh, revolutionary situation that brought about um, a deep social and political and economic change. Uh, but your negative case of a systemic crisis that did not engender a revolutionary situation is Chile, first in 1973 and then in 1983 and 86. Uh, uh, what what was different in Chile? Why didn't Chile experience a successful revolution in either of these situations? Uh, not necessarily. And this is one of the reasons to put this particular comparison to work together because of any type of necessary and sufficient causes. I think if you mm -hmm. went to Chile in 1983 and you thought about democratization underway in the region, you thought about various forms of international pressure on the Pinochet regime. You thought about the fact that it was experiencing at the time a very severe downturn, which was one of the main rationales it had for its own legitimation, other than being uh, anti-communist. But by that point, that threat has receded at least up to a point. Then you're really running through almost every rationale we can think of for why we'd expect a revolution to take place. 
And that's why I talked a few minutes ago about, well, what are we missing in that case? Well, we're missing two things. One is that history doesn't have these kind of necessary and sufficient moments, that, that recognition that things can be otherwise. And when we're thinking about things can be otherwise, we're largely thinking about strategic action and what people did on the ground. And the reality there, I think, that's important is that the state didn't sufficiently splinter. And in particular, the coercive apparatus didn't abandon the regime. And I think it's one thing that we've lost, particularly in the study of contemporary revolutions, where we often shorthand them as forms of extreme civil disobedience and people power. And I think that those expressions of civil disobedience and people power are wonderful, extraordinary, brave acts. But I think we forget to our peril sometimes that they take place within particular state society complexes and within a particular uh, international order. And unless you get a shift, a significant shift in that international order or forms of ordering, and unless you get a significant shift in state society relations, then a state can hang on for quite a while. And they did in Chile in 1983, just as Assad did in Syria in 2011. So if you think about that case, I would not argue, and I would find it unlikely that you could argue, that the Syrian opposition movement was any less committed, strategic, emotionally invested, uh, braver than the movement in Tunisia or Egypt in the same year. And yet, uh, in Tunisia, there was a moderately successful revolution. In Egypt, there was a moderately successful short-term revolution, at least until the coup in 2013. And in Syria, the revolutionary mobilization um, ended up as a civil war. And I don't think that's because of the strength or commitment or strategic action of that popular movement. I think that's because the coercive apparatus stood by Assad and the international actors that he had behind him, particularly Russia and then Iran, wouldn't give him up. And I think you can make the same point about Chile in 1983, that the Americans uh, were not at that point willing to let him go. Uh, and there wasn't significant, significant enough forms of international solidarity making in the other directions. There was a relatively closed rather than open international uh, order. And most importantly, there's a kind of veto power of the coercive apparatus, and it didn't significantly split. So for all the, the background structural conditions, for all the bravery, uh, intensity, and organizational prowess of the opposition movement, it didn't happen. And it didn't not happen for big structural reasons. It actually happened because of the interaction of people's uh, forms of mobilization and contestation on the ground and these other forms of uh, interaction of which the international is a hugely important dimension. Right. And um, I think that when it comes to the analysis of, of these coercive apparatuses, there's a temptation to try to reduce them to deeper structural factors to assume that the revolutionary, that the coercive apparatus is always going to be an agent of some other um, economic or political or social group uh, and to underestimate the the autonomy of the chorus of apparatus, but also to um, assume that 
the coercive apparatus is always and everywhere going to be united and thereby um, ignore the factors that uh, are required to reproduce the unity of the course of apparatus over time in the face of popular contestation particularly when when the for example social class differences uh within society are often uh reproduced within the military intentions between um the rank and file in the officer corps and senior officers and junior officers i think that studies of revolutions and and political regime transitions have um, really not delved into uh, um, the course of apparatuses. And even then, to the extent that they have, they've largely focused on the military to the exclusion of um, the police, uh, which, you know, in the U.S. right now is something in the forefront of my mind in terms of, of, of maintaining the stability of the social order um, and, and, and uh, forestalling any kind of revolutionary change. Um, I think that uh, there's still a lot more work to be done in the sociology of the course of apparatus and understanding how, uh, to the extent that the course of apparatus maintains its unity during these potential revolutionary situations or in the face of severe revolutionary challenges, um, how is this uh, uh, unity reproduced? Um, yeah, what I mean, are the factors that reproduce it? I think that's exactly right. That even states where the various branches of the coercive apparatus are deeply integrated into the regime, they're not monolithic. So it might be the different branches are more embedded than others. You're right to pick up the difference between officers and particularly senior officers that will be taking gains uh, from uh, that particular alliance and the rank and file who will feel very little, if any, of that. Um, there's also the nice work by people like Dan Slater on how what allies a coercive apparatus with a regime may actually be a fairly negative sense of where we're mutually protected against something worse, which is popular mobilization, particularly leftist popular mobilization. Now, if that fear is reduced and if parts of the coercive apparatus think they can lock in their gains through somebody else, then they may well switch sides. At the same time, you get institution building exactly because there's a splintering of the coercive apparatus. So the obvious example in the contemporary world is Iran, where you have this extremely competitive system that's taking place within an elite structure, which spends a lot of time effectively positioning and contesting and fighting with each other and occasionally mobilizes popular dissent for that uh, particular uh, gain. Um, so there are lots of different examples. I think you're right that we know some stuff about this, but maybe not enough. How do these cleavages operate under what conditions? Sharon Nepstad has done some nice work on what she calls strategic shifts. When do parts of the coercive apparatus change sides? And I think your point about the police is a very good one. The police are often not significantly embedded in these uh, militarized uh, regimes uh, and uh, often. Uh, they'll be the first set of people that will take off their badges or you'll have to, the elite will have to send, the regime will have to send out a bunch of paramilitary thugs because the police won't be doing their job in, um, in a militarized enough fashion. I take your example, that's not necessarily the lesson from the US, but it might be the lesson elsewhere. The other insight that I think is super useful here is some of the really good work on 
nonviolent and unarmed protest argues that exactly one of its main benefits is troubling the way that a regime can use its coercive apparatus and its security forces. It's not easy to fire on unarmed protesters anywhere, particularly when the world is watching. So that sense of uh, advantage of large numbers that are committed to nonviolent or unarmed protest and what that particularly does to the way that a security and coercive apparatus will defend a regime is hugely important. Remembering that you don't necessarily need the coercive apparatus to join you. You just need them to stay out of it. You need them to be neutral. You need them to return to barracks exactly as they did in Tunisia in 2011. So again, it's this it's this balancing act between variation and historical specificity and trying to generate these portable insights and these, these configurations that are stable across time and place. And it's the more we do this kind of relationship between uh, history and theory, hopefully as close remove as we can, understanding that there's always a tension between them, then the more insights we'll get into this uh, as we can. Uh, right. And so... Um... Uh, moving past the revolutionary situation, um, uh, when you have this dual power situation, um, what are the uh, key causal configurations that shape revolutionary trajectories? Uh, why, in your analysis, did Cuba's revolution produce fa- more far-reaching social transformation than South Africa's? And again, we're going to come back to the chorus of apparatus playing a very central role here, right? Exactly. Uh, here, I guess. I wanted to get away um, from, again, common sense or well-received ways of thinking about um, what does the work here. So once upon a time, that would have been that in order to succeed, you needed to have an armed rebellion of a particular kind, of which somewhere like Cuba is really the exemplar, which is why I like to use that case. It's the classic case of a revolution against the odds. You know, Batista's uh, in charge. He's backed by the most powerful state in the world. He's got this enormously resilient, powerful security and coercive apparatus. You haven't got a significant economic downturn. Uh, most people think that these these 20 characters that get off the beach in, in Santiago and then hole up in the Sierra Maestra haven't got much of a chance, even if you think about them linked to the urban underground, which after all is a, is a history of failure as much as anything else. So how does this happen? And you're right to say that a large part of it is played by the coercive apparatus. It's played by the fact that most of these characters aren't benefiting from this corrupt system that Batista has generated and imposed. They get sick after a while of chasing these band of guerrillas round the mountains. There's an interesting sort of advantage of peripherality here, kind of Jim Scott point, that rather than take on the state in classic Marxist fashion in its backyard in the cities, you actually find the uplands and, and peripheral places that states find it very difficult um, uh, to find you and engage with over any kind of consistent period. It's like the Taliban or it's like, Mao's Great March, there are examples where peripherality, uh, geographical of, of various kinds, becomes an advantage. So you've got a lot going on. You've got leadership, you've got resilience, you've got organization for sure, but you've also got the state. You've got 
international factors shifting, Eisenhower deciding that he's not going to sell Batista any more arms, the American ambassador wandering around town looking for a replacement. But effectively, you've also got the coercive apparatus at some point, at least the military part, just effectively giving up and saying, we're not fighting these guys anymore, at least not for you uh, here talking about Batista. So it's the combination between mobilization from below, commitment, intensity, effective solidarity, very good use of available forms of propaganda, Radio Rebeldes, or the positive write-ups in the New York Times that sell um, Castro and the movement more generally as, as, uh, if not anti-socialist, then not leftist, nationalist along the Jose Marti line. So creative forms of mobilization and resistance and contestation. But here it's really important to put it in connection with broader state society relations of which the coercive apparatus is vital and then the shifting international relations. And I think you need all three together to tell you the story of why Cuba succeeds and then uh, sustains itself against the odds. Right. And, um, uh, a key theme that comes up in these in these chapters on revolutionary situations and revolutionary trajectories is that uh, neo-patrimonial or sultanistic or personalistic regimes, whatever word you want to use to describe it, where um, the big man at the top, uh, in scare quotes, uh, um, uh, arrogates power to himself, uh, becomes um, uh, the be-all, end-all um um, bestower of power and goods on different factions and tries to play factions off against each other. These are often the most vulnerable regimes because um, it's a lot harder for these leaders to maintain the loyalty of the coercive apparatus in these uh, situations where you get um, uprisings from below and, and, and insurrections, right? Yeah. I, I mean, there are, again, there are, there are two aspects to this, right? One is I think, uh, and this is not my insight, it's it's been in the uh, scholarly work on revolutions for quite a while. I'm thinking in particular of characters like Jack Goldstone. There are regimes that are more vulnerable than others. That doesn't mean, and the, the, the number one here is these personalistic, exclusivist type of regimes, and it's Batista, and it's the Shah, and it's um, Noriega and all of these uh, type of characters. And the reason for that, and actually it goes back to Nicholas II and, and Louis XVI for that matter, the reason is that if l'état c'est moi, then if the state's you, then that's fine when things are going well, but it's also on you when they're not. So there's a direction for problems as they arise and forms of delegitimation as they arise. Remember, a revolution needs two things. It needs a clear target. Otherwise, very often, remember, most people accept the misery of their lives as some kind of natural process. It's because of my class or my religion or because of my gender or because of my race. This is why I think it's just the way they are. There's a kind of acceptance of most people's impoverishment and exploitation, miserable though that might seem. So firstly, you need to turn uh, that form of exploitation, dispossession, sense of injustice into a target and say, look, this isn't on you or it's not part of some cosmic order. It's on them. It's their fault. That's number one, target a sense of injustice. And the second part is to say, look, we can do something about this, that there is something better. And if we simply get rid of this guy, and it almost is always a guy, 
And if we can generate a different type of political, symbolic and economic order, then your life will be much less exploited, full of dispossession, full of injustice, full of inequality and all the rest of it. So it's a dual process of politicizing grievances. One, a a target and two, a sense of hope and optimism and fear rather than acceptance of uh, your conditions as being natural and preordained and inevitable and going to follow on. And the thing about the reason that those personalistic exclusivist regimes are vulnerable is they give you a clear target. So that's one thing. Uh, They also lack a deep infrastructural connection between the regime and society. That in these types of regimes, if you have a problem, it can quite quickly become an existential one. And if you contrast that to democracies where there's this institutional, uh, often quite deeply embedded infrastructural order, there's forms of uh, institutions that can decompress radical challenges from below, whether that's forms of political representation like parliaments or forms of media. There are outlets for people's anger and grievances that tend to stop short of the regime. So we have, if you like, I think a spectrum from most vulnerable as personalistic exclusivists, the least vulnerable being democracies. And again, how that interacts with opposition movements and international relations is what tells is how uh, what you need to look for if you're looking at how revolutions unfold. And I think another mistake, the second point that people sometimes get wrong, is they think about revolutionary movements and other forms of protest from below is, you know, how many people have you got and are you armed uh, and can you take on the state in a military fashion? And that's where I think the South African case tells you something interesting, because regardless of the fact that the ANC had an armed wing and regardless of the fact that it had a militarized dimension uh, to it, it was never going to defeat the apartheid state militarily. And it knew that. So one reason uh, that it took the particular stances it did, that it had this full spectrum type of opposition movement from diplomacy and the anti-apartheid struggle as a boycott of sporting events or apartheid uh, regime goods, all the way through to forms of political representation and an armed wing, was because it knew that it couldn't win in one sphere and one sphere alone. It also meant in the end that it couldn't attain a final victory, that for all of its smart use of social technologies, for all of its uh, impressive diplomatic reach and forms of legitimation to the wider world, it needed to make a deal with the apartheid state. And that deal meant that the ANC became the new government. It meant that there were fairly radical changes that took place in South Africa. But it also meant that the new state was hemmed in. And even today, what are we now, 25 years on, is still hemmed in by the deal that was done uh, between 1991 and 1994. And again, that's why I contrast it with Cuba. If in one case you have a handful of characters that are able to mobilize, ally that with the weakness and vulnerability of this exclusivist regime, ally that then to shifts that take place internationally for both uh, the state and then for the opposition movement, you get this this revolution that's not just one against the odds, but still in place, regardless of everything that's happened since then. On the other hand, you had a 
a movement that couldn't have been more legitimate, that had enormous numbers on its side, and yet has found itself hemmed in so much so that I wouldn't say there has been a revolutionary transformation in South Africa over the last 25 years or so. And again, that's trying to push back on this idea of necessary and sufficient causes, big structural factors that you can read off from outcomes to cause this and to look at the action in between and this relationship between history, historical legacy, uh, social action, state society relations, and, and the international. Right. And also it's about um, meso-level organizational factors uh, as well, organizational cultures. And um, uh, uh, these things, as we discussed, affect um, the ability of coercive apparatuses to maintain their unity in the face of international pressure and um, economic challenges like what South Africa had been facing in the, in the seventies and increasing over the course of the eighties. Mm. Um, um, uh, one could argue that, uh, organizational ideologies played an important role in maintaining the unity of, of their coercive apparatus, which then allowed them to, uh, have bargain for much stronger p- position, uh, for the new rules of the game following, uh, the formal end of apartheid. Mm. Um, uh, so, uh, finally turning now to, um, revolutionary outcomes, um, you look at the Islamic Republic in Iran and compla- compare it to, uh, Ukraine since the orange revolution. Um, you find that both of these cases have high levels of intra-elite conflict and yet Iran's state has had much higher infrastructural and despotic powers than Ukraine's state. Uh, and also there's just been, um, much more, um, as, as Kevin Harris's, uh, uh research, uh, has demonstrated, there's been uh, pretty far reaching social change, mm. um, um, in Iran since 1979, whereas in the Ukraine, uh, you still have a highly, um, oligarchical social and economic structure. Um, there hasn't been. Uh, in fact, if anything, uh, human development indicators have probably decreased in the last several years with the civil war and, and the financial crisis there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what accounts for these different revolutionary outcomes? I think, again, it's a, it's a, it's a complex story. Um, I mean, one of the most interesting things I think that takes place in revolutionary outcomes in Iran and Ukraine here build into a longer story is that there isn't this moment, this kind of year zero, which you often get in the imaginary and sort of romanticization of revolutionaries themselves, where you just get to start again. Um, Actually, the day that the revolutionary regime begins is the day the hard work starts. How are you going to collect tax? How are you going to teach students? How are you going to police Descent. How are you going to generate some type of infrastructural momentum? Because you can't do anything unless there's some kind of functioning state. At the same time, you've often got unruly neighbours, as was the case uh, with Iran. You have the invasion by Saddam Hussein's Iraq pretty shortly after the revolution. You often have intransigent elites in some parts of the country or in some sectional interests that are still uh, uh, disputing. Uh, the revolutionary regime's credentials. So what happens then is is two things, far more continuity between old and new than people think. 
And secondly, often an increase in despotic capacity um, because of the sense of, of insecurity, uh, real or imagined. And I think that's the story that you get with Iran. You get this melded uh, form of order that combines old and new. You then get the formative experience of the war with Iraq, where different parts of the revolutionary regime effectively institutionalized different parts of the state apparatus. And what uh, Kevin Harris, I think, researched you is fantastic on this, the generation of what's called a warfare welfare complex, where actually a lot of these parastatals gain their power and legitimacy through a uh, delivery of parts of the infrastructural commitments, the, the welfare commitments of the post-revolutionary regime around the country, which is combined with their role uh, in the, the war with Iraq and then ongoing conflicts that the Iranian state has. So that's one part uh, of the story. Uh, and Ukraine is very different in that respect, which is it isn't an attempt to reconfigure the state. So even if we think about revolutions as more complex balances between old and new than we might think, as never going to be these examples of year zero, start history afresh, and all the rest of it, in Ukraine, there's not even an attempt to really get to the heart of what's going on in systems of governance, let alone with those other forms of change that we associate with revolutions, relations of exchange and production or symbolic forms of order and interaction. It's really about one elite trying to replace the other so that they can use the state as a vehicle for gain. So it's an intra-elite conflict which rhetorically uses revolution and tries to harness popular mobilization for its own uh, causes. Whereas Iran is an attempt to do something much more radical. And yet, even as it's constrained and even if it's reconfigured in these curious ways, it, it's at a degree qualitatively distinct from Ukraine in that respect. And I think what that tells you is something is shifting in terms of the broader world historical context which in some ways Iran is a segue from old to new. It's the last great modern revolution, this legacy that goes back to France that Scotchpole captured by that term social revolution, which is world historically important in terms of changes, not just uh, to the societies in which they take place, but broader spheres of international relations, regional and to some extent global. And yet, Iran is a segue because it pioneers, at least in that incipient 16 months leading up to the Shah's uh, removal, of a form of unarmed uh, protest, of people power protest. At the time, the largest movements we've probably seen in world history, at least by absolute numbers. So it pioneers that form of protest that today we think about as commonplace. So it's this segue of old and new. It's, it's, it's this merger of that older model of revolution and how we've started to develop uh, particular insights. And Ukraine, remember, happens after the really big rupture and shift in ideas of revolution, which is marked by the collapse of communism in East Central Europe in 89. The Orange Revolution itself is downwind of that. It's a much more restrained affair. 
that is largely about a combination combination of popular mobilization and people power on the one hand and intra-elite contestation on the other. It's no longer about fundamental issues of a class inequality. It's more harnessed by ideas of rights and justice understood uh, as, as a form of cultural debasement, how to overturn that and gain recognition and or a form of political representation. So we've switched the whole question of how modern revelations were meant to happen and what they happened for on its head. Once upon a time, they were about great issues of economic injustice and inequality and how that was the basis for understanding uh, legitimate political regimes and forms of symbolic exchange and interaction and recognition. And we've switched it on their head so that now it's primarily about issues of symbolic representation and recognition and about forms of political injustice, but no longer really honest about uh, issues of exchange, production, value, uh, and economic uh, interaction. So you've got changes in each trajectory that tell you something about how revolutions themselves over these different periods of time have shifted. And like I said, I think Iran helps you transition from one to the other, and Ukraine sits right in the middle of this new um, form of revolution that has resonances with past cases, but is really a sort of archetypal crystallization of how revolution itself has changed in, in form and modality and character in the contemporary world. Right. And um, I do want to come back to this sort of uh, question of whether these sort of the sort of revolutionary light uh, ideology has uh, or, 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 or tendency has uh, changed in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008, 2009 and increasing global concerns about inequality. Um, but I want to talk a little bit more now about um, the negotiated revolutions that have become much more uh, these negotiated revolutions that have become much more common than those uh, social revolutions. Um, uh, what are what do you mean by negotiated revolutions, which was uh, the subject of 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 your previous work, and uh, why have they you've addressed to some extent why they've become more common? Um, do you to what extent also do you think that um, the increasing mobility of capital, the increasing ability of elites to exit societies, uh, um, uh, the increasing dominance of the financial sector globally, do you, to what extent do you think that has played a role in making negotiated revolutions more common? Pretty big role, I think. So if you go back to the South African case, I would argue that, again, for all the, for all the bravery, um, and remarkable organizational resilience of the anti-apartheid movements, they weren't going to win until there was some kind of fundamental shift amongst South African elites. And that meant a political elite negotiation, but it also meant the financial elites coming around and deciding that they could do business with the ANC, which was a process that took a very long time. And it meant that the ANC giving up a large amount or at least a substantial amount of its leftist credentials. Remember that fair, there was a close intermeshing of the ANC with South African Communist uh, Party for much of the anti-apartheid era. And characters like Cyril Ramaphosa now 
the president at one time, a very powerful trade union organizer, coming round to the idea that they weren't going to generate a socialist revolution in the sense of a command economy was crucial in terms of that process succeeding and being allowed to run its course. And it took, like I said, a long time and it took financial elites negotiation. It took a bunch of these characters going off to Davos. There's this famous story. I don't know whether it's apocryphal or not. It doesn't really matter because it's good of Nelson Mandela being hectored by um, Chinese finance minister at Davos of all places being told, look, you've got to give up on this nationalization combined economy thing. Look what it's done to us. You know, it's going to be fine. Um, just do a deal and, and, and then, um, you know, watch the takeoff. So I think you're right. I think that's crucial, but I don't think it's the only thing that takes place. I think that there's alongside that a delegitimation of the autocratic statism and despotism of revolutions in the 20th century. That by the 1980s, you've now got not just in Iran, but in Nicaragua, uh, to some extent in Cuba, obviously the Soviet experience, um, horrific examples in Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge, of example of revolutions becoming uh, more despotic, if anything, than the regimes that they overcame. And the disavowal of that legacy of autocratic statism by figures uh, on the left and certainly amongst uh, liberals of the revolutionary legacy. And to some extent, there was another revolutionary legacy that had been submerged but was available for reappropriation, which is the American uh, more limited form of revolution, as Hannah Arendt put it. And now it wasn't self-limiting for slaves and it wasn't self-limiting for those people and Native Americans on the wrong end of the American revolutionary experiment. But at least in terms of its understanding of property in its understanding of the revolution ending with uh, checks and balances and the constitutional order. In that sense, it was a less radical settlement than the kind of total revolution you associate with France and then Russia and then China and Cuba and Iran and so on. And that had its historical um, uh, genealogy through the springtime of nations in Europe in 1848, the constitutional revolutions in the early part of the 20th century in Iran and uh, Russia, China, and various other places, and then uh, transmogrified, at least in part, into the civil rights movement in various other places and fused with nonviolent techniques associated with Gandhi and Martin Luther King and all the rest of it. And 1968 here in the revolutionary experience, unsuccessful or otherwise, was, was a moment where these various um, branches of revolution collide and hit. And so by the 80s, I think this, both that positive experience, but also the negative experience of autocratic statism meant that there was a new concept of revolution that was unarmed, as Daniel Ritter puts it, nonviolent, as a bunch of other people put it. It was effectively about liberalization, liberalization of symbolic relations, no longer a constraint on what you could think on uh, sort of reaction to any kind of state ideology, freedom of conscience of a really quite radical kind, including, by the way, a fairly horrible, previously submerged, you know, right-wing traits, uh, which you've seen emerge in parts of East Central Europe over the last 30 years as the lid's been taken off. Uh, A kind of economic free-for-all, which ended in, as we know, a shock therapy, which has had 
uh, a few winners and many more losers over the last 30 years or so. And then also, at, the, at least at the beginning, a radical form of political liberalisation. Eventually, people realised that you couldn't function with you know, 500 different parties, all of which were getting you know, 0.5% of the vote. So there was some kind of threshold put in place in most places. But this liberalised form of people power, unarmed revolution emerged, I think, from both this previously submerged genealogy and then a reaction to histories and experiences of autocratic statism. They really combined in the, the mid to late 1980s in the Philippines in 86 and then 89 and then fast forward to Ukraine and so on. And I think it's that that's the hallmark of negotiated revolutions more than it's about um, an acceptance of capitalism as the only game in town. I think there's something fundamental to that and I think the experience of South Africa bears that out. But I think what lies beneath is actually something more important, which is the understanding of the promise and utopian prospect of revolution, this idea of hope, this idea that you have a source of your problems and you can do something about it and you can radically transform your experience without resort to armed violence. It was that that really lies at the heart of negotiated transformations. It allows you to sit down across from your adversaries because you've effectively ruled out armed conflict as the means of getting to your promised land because it's led so often to despotism of various kinds. And you had these remarkable negotiations in 1989, to some extent later on, but really in 1989, which provided a radically different framework of historical experience, but without the violence that was considered uh, to be the hallmark of previous revolutions. So if I had to summarize it, negotiated revolutions, I think it's a rebalancing of ends and means. The old calculation of revolutions, the Leninist version of revolutions, is the ends justifies the means, by any means necessary. We will do whatever it takes to win, because the point is to win, because that's how you generate more just, more equitable social orders. The idea, I think, from the 80s, really until now, is that you can't separate ends and means. You're not going to get a good, uh, normatively speaking, benign, just order after revolution if you've used unjust methods. There has to be a consistency between them. And this is a long-standing liberal trope. It's also a long-standing anarchist trope going back to the 19th century, this notion of prefiguration that an order that's an outcome depends on the means by which you bring it into being. And so you can see that in liberal, uh, democratic, people power activists in the contemporary world, and you can also see it amongst the anarchists of Rojava and elsewhere. So I think these strands came together, and that's really the hallmark of where I came up with that idea of negotiated revolutions from. Right. I think that's a, that's really persuasive. I think that, um, um, since, uh, the collapse of communism and even before that, since at least 1956, uh, 1968 with, with the, um, uh, interventions in, in Hungary and, and, uh, Czechoslovakia by the Soviet union really, uh, started the internal divide between within the left, uh, um, at least within the Western left, uh, over uh, how to bring about uh, revolutionary change without becoming despotic. And um, I think that you're right that this 
uh, sort of horizontalist or prefigurative approach has become uh, um, a much more um, uh, common ideology or, or, or a set of tactics and strategies for uh, social movements that are seeking to uh, fundamentally change society. But you say that you seem to suggest that there is um, a trade-off involved in so far as it makes it much harder for um, opposition movements to form cohesive political organizations that can withstand uh, the onslaught uh, uh, that um, a chorus of apparatus might launch against uh, a coalition and to um, uh, and to have any kind of vision about what to do once you take state power. Um, could you uh, elaborate on on some of the trade-offs involved in adopting this more horizontal strategy? Yeah, I mean, it really boils down to a question for these more horizontalist movements, which is what happens if you win? In the revolutionaries in the past, when the end justifies the means and the point is to win, to seize the state, to institute a program of radical social transformation, then you have a pretty good answer. You've got a blueprint that you're ready to put into place in day one, right? The revolutionary process is intended to get you into power so the revolution proper can begin and often the first thing that happens is a reckoning with the coalitional aspect of the revolutionary movement that got you into power the seizing of the state by a particular faction and the institution of a radical program that's that vanguardist vertical movement now we know what the weaknesses of that movements are but we should also think about what the strengths are which is there you are on day one and there's your radical program it's clear the horizontalists have the opposite problem, which is they have this participation advantage, they have very high levels of legitimation, um, but their weaknesses uh, are reversed. You know, what happens if you win? What's the program? So if you think about a case like Egypt in 2011, you had this enormous wide uh, revolutionary coalition that came together. But effectively, once Mubarak was gone, a large chunk of that movement effectively went home and thought the job was done. And it wasn't. It was just beginning. And so what happened then is the outmaneuvering by various elites, whether it's the Muslim Brotherhood initially, and then the, the combination of all state elites, um, parts of the coercive apparatus and parts of the financial elite, which generate the coup in 2013, which brings CC into power and conditions that are, are at least as bad as those pre-2011 and maybe worse. So that organizational outflanking by all the elites is the real problem the horizontalist movements have. The second thing which is linked is that, which is the South Africa example can help us with, is the trade-offs. Is if you haven't got revolution as a fight to the finish, if you never have that sense of ultimate victory, you never have that parade of Castro and Che and Camilo and the other Cuban revolutionaries through the streets of Havana, then you have a far more hemmed in order. You know, Chile again in 1889, post uh, Pinochet, the constitutional um, uh, way that uh, he was ousted and then the new government came into power is another example of these trade-offs. So past revolutions were very good at seizing the state and instituting programs of radical social transformation, but very bad uh, at the despotism and, and high authoritarianism of those projects. Contemporary revolutionaries are pretty good 
at gaining power, at least uh, in conditions where there's some kind of shift internationally and some kind of at least neutrality by the coercive apparatus, but pretty bad at what comes next because they're both hemmed in by the deals they do and because horizontalist non-movement movements don't have a very good answer to who's in charge, who do we deal with, and what's your program. So I think where we are today is some attempts to begin to fuse these two legacies of the vertical vanguardist and the more horizontalist, prefigurative, deliberative. So if you look at where a lot of neo-anarchist thinkers have got to, whether it's the characters that were behind Occupy Wall Street or the people enacting revolution in Rojava, or even theorists like Hart and Negri, they're often thinking about how can we have some kind of at least temporary leadership or some form of representative leadership that can provide direction and provide a program, if not a blueprint of historical development, but retain that sense of deliberation, of mass participation, of horizontalism and volatilism that is at the heart of those movements. I think, again, we can look at the experience of various social movements, Black Lives Matter, Extinction Rebellion, and see them exactly wrestling with the same issue. So I think these two legacies of revolution have always been there. I think the preeminent one between 1789 and 1989 was the vanguardist vertical, and the more horizontalist one was submerged, but appeared at various moments and has become the dominant strand since 89. And I think 30 years after 89, we're seeing some of the weaknesses of that model, whether it's examples like the Egyptian case in 2011, or simply the way that East Central European states since 89 haven't delivered for enough of their people and or have ended up with pretty nasty authoritarian populist regimes of their own, like in Hungary and Poland, to see that there are at least some pretty serious questions to be asked of that mode of conducting revolutions. And then, like I said, over the last few years, uh, practitioners, theorists, um, uh, activists, starting to wrestle with how they can combine these two legacies into something that, that links the advantages of both and hopefully minimizes their disadvantages. Right. And I think that there's a, a parallel intellectual challenge as well, because um, these different horizontal social movement alliances have different actors who may have um, a common enemy. They may have some kind of thin chain of equivalence to use uh, uh, Leclerc and Mouffe's uh, idea of um, uh some factor that unites these different political demands and often it's an anti-coalition right against an incumbent group but that's a a pretty thin basis to form a coalition around and i think that uh, the intellectual challenge is to form um some kind of ideological way to uh link uh uh feminist and anti-racist and and socialist for example um critiques of of the status quo and to unite them in a way that um makes uh actors in these different social movements realize uh a, a linked fate in a much deeper way than merely a shared opposition to a status quo um, I think that that's something that um, has been lost as well with the discrediting of something like 
uh, uh, communist uh, ideology that um, for all of its flaws did give people um, some idea, some idea of a roadmap and some idea of where their coalition was going and what their um, shared set of goals were. Yeah, um, I think that's right on two levels, right? One is that one of the things I enjoy about studying revolutions is just how closely they relate, not just history and theory, but history practice and theory is that characters like, you know, from Marx and Engels up to Khomeini or, 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 you know, Mika White and other people who, who helped construct Occupy Wall Street is that the people theorizing revolution are also the people practicing revolution, people making sense of conditions of injustice and exploitation and debasement, and then seeking something better. So you can't understand the theory of revolution, let alone the practice or history of revolution, unless you study these characters and how they understand revolution in their various contexts. So that practical dimension is, I think, fascinating and fairly unusual, I think, within the social sciences. The second one, I mean, you'll know that I end the book by thinking about how you can avoid losing track of that utopian dimension of revolution that sense that things don't have to be like this and they can be better if not today then tomorrow or the day after that something to be strived for amongst conditions of of exploitation of various kinds so there's that but there's also the way that you do so without a preformed ideological blueprint of what that new order is to look like, that you can only make it with the cards that you're dealt in the imminent social conditions that you have. And any revolution, any revolutionary who's ever succeeded has always understood that. Marx and Engels, Lenin, uh, Castro, Khomeini, again, up to people in the contemporary world, you have to adapt to your singular circumstances. So take your strategies and take your visions of how things can be otherwise from various places and deploy them creatively in the environment that you find yourself operating within. And I think that combination of praxis and real utopia makes me think that revolutions are here to stay, even if perhaps many theories of revolutions aren't. Okay. I think that that's a good note to, to end this conversation on. Uh, George, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Anatomies of Revolution is a, a fascinating book and uh, uh, definitely a must read for people who are interested in in creating social change in the 21st century. Um, uh, thank you for joining us on the World Affairs uh, podcast from the New Books Network. Uh, goodbye. Thanks very much, Jeff. Lovely to talk to you. Goodbye.